Hey, welcome to the podcast. This morning we're reading from John chapter 9, verses 1 to 39, and this is the word of the Lord. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and he came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. The Pharisees started to investigate the healing. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes, the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. This is the word of the Lord. We, you and I, 
in the entire human race have this most extraordinary ability to make things all about what they aren't meant to be about. It's extraordinary, really. I mean, take our lives, for example, and what so many of us do and contrast it with the sorts of things we wanted to be and do. The internet is just chock full of videos of small kids talking about the sorts of things they want to do when they're older, right? And I'm humbled all the time. My wife Joy is a teacher and she brings home creative writing and art from school. And it's all about the sorts of things that six and seven year old kids want to be and do in this career path like football or a writer or a painter or a dancer. To wanting to be the best big brother or sister they can be. To watching Planet Earth 2 and writing letters to our government about our plastic usage and how it's killing to the earth. To how they just want to spend endless hours having fun with friends, adventure expectation, passion, vision, hope, greeting tomorrow with open arms. We all had those dreams, didn't we? We all had passions like those. I mean, I'm only now coming to terms with the fact that I'm too old to be signed by Man United, right? Obviously, I had the talent. That was never in question. But I'm too old now. I'm just getting over it every year as the transfer window comes and I don't get the call. And I hope that you are living your dreams at least in some way. The reality is that for so many of us, where on earth, how on earth, did we end up just longing after and striving after the big house on the Malone Road or the Audi or Scandinavian sideboards? Where did it come from? When did our focus shift? So many lives ruined, marriages split, friendships trashed, the earth destroyed, all of our things like money, sex, property, nice cars, beautiful things, media followings. These are all nice things in and of themselves, right? I don't think deep down, however, anybody really wanted the striving of their life to be after them. We have this incredible ability to make things about what they aren't. And it's in the church too, right? I was helping out at an event recently. It was being run by a big parachurch organization and um, I ended up doing sound at the event or at least pretending that I knew what I was doing on sound. And it's a great organization, right? They do incredible work all over the world. And as I was approaching a big anniversary for the organization, the whole event was about telling the story of who they were, why they existed to do what they do and what their impact was around the world. So there were these amazing stories from people all over the world, most of them speaking of great stuff, on the ground work, starting projects with people from very poor backgrounds or who have suffered natural disaster. And at one point, this man from Africa begins to tell his story of, how he's in, of what he's encountered through his work. And this is what he said. We were working with my friend and he became ill and unfortunately he died. And one of our partners was just praying for him and praise God he breathed again and he came back to life. And on he went to talk about their finances and projects and what they were on etc. And I'm thinking, what? Hold up! Stop the meeting! you got to stop! Someone came back from the dead? Are you kidding me? And yet, there we are. A room full of Christians, clergy, leaders and nobody reacts like nobody responds not one surely in all of the work and the things that we have to celebrate that God has done someone coming back from the dead is the greatest of them all we have this incredible ability to miss the point an incredible ability at times to make the gospel about a lot of things things other than Jesus 
We've just read today a really well-known passage of scripture. It's probably the best known of all the miracles of Jesus as Jesus returns sight to the blind. And you've probably heard it preached on or kids talks or sections in books written all about it many times. It's an astonishing story and testimony to Jesus healing someone. But I don't know about you, but as I read the story, it's actually the reaction of the Pharisees that I find even more astonishing than the healing itself. This man... Blind from birth, has his sight restored at the hands of Jesus and what follows are all of the questions and criticism. Is his testimony credible? Ask the parents. Was he blind from birth? Okay, he was. We can't trust him. He's a sinner. And this Jesus, who is he? Why and how is he doing all of this? And where on earth is he from? There's even this amazing bit in the interaction with the man who's been healed where even the Pharisees bring him back a second time for questioning that he can't quite believe that they, the religious ones, the faithful ones, can't appreciate the miracle that had happened that day. So he gets sarcastic and he says this, Then they asked him, what did, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? He sees what they don't their incredible ability to miss the point. We're about to dig into a brand new series at Central. It starts next week called Manifesto, and we're super excited about it, right? We're going to be spending about 10 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the greatest sermon that was ever preached. It's the words of Jesus poured out, calling us to way of living, attitudes, activity, direction. It's articulate, beautiful, countercultural, radical, challenging to just about every single part of our lives, spelling out what it might look like to walk in the way of Jesus. It's his manifesto. And it can be so easy to read even the most amazing passages of scripture as just things Jesus said and things about Jesus and things we need to do for Jesus and miss who it's all about. We can miss Jesus in the most incredible words he ever spoke. And I want to say today and help us begin to come to know that the manifesto is Jesus. Jesus is the gravity that pulls everything together and gives them significance, reality and meaning. Without him, all things lose their value. Without him, all things are just detached pieces floating in space. It's impossible to emphasize. It's possible to emphasize and long for a spiritual truth, a value, a virtue or gift and yet miss Jesus, the one who is the embodiment and incarnation of all truth, values, virtues and gifts. It's possible to long for the kingdom without the king. And we need to seek the king. We need to seek Jesus, know Jesus, because it's only then that we come to come into contact with him who is life. Christianity is not an ideology or philosophy or practice. Christianity is the incredible reality that beauty, truth and goodness are found in a person. The manifesto is Jesus. And I have two questions for you today. Who is Jesus to you? And who is Jesus in you? The first thing is Jesus to us. On April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, seniors at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, placed bombs in the cafeteria set to go off during the first lunch period at 11.17am. And they planned to shoot everyone who tried to escape. And errors in the construction of the detonators prevented the bombs from exploding. But Klebold and Harris nevertheless held the whole school hostage, killed 12 students and one teacher. And at the time, it was the worst episode of school violence in history. 
Contrary to wide speculation then and since, the boys did not come from broken homes and did not have records of criminal violence. And yet there is this huge outcry about the event that led to numerous documentaries. It's still one of those events that evokes deep emotion in Americans and others now. And the two boys were completely vilified in the press and in popular opinion. They were the lowest of the low. So low, in fact, that the number of people killed that day is generally listed as, a, as 13. And the Columbine Memorial commemorates only 13 deaths as though Klebold and Harris hadn't also died that day in that place. Because once they'd finished the shooting, they turned the guns on themselves. And in an interview afterwards, Sue Klebold, Dylan's mum, said this. After this, I realised I don't have a clue what another human being is thinking. We read our children fairy tales and teach them that there are good guys and bad guys, and I would never do that now. I would say that every one of us has the capacity to be good and the capacity to make poor choices. If you love someone, you you have to love both the good and the bad in them. And I loved my son. Dylan was my son. In 1999, to most of the world, those boys were the devil. To Sue, Dylan was her son. To Sue, it was Dylan. And she loved him. And who is Jesus to you? You know, the first thing that strikes me when I read this passage is this, verse 10. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed and then I could see. It's this. He just experienced the most incredible, life-changing gift. And yet he doesn't really know, even know, who this Jesus was. The man they call Jesus. The thing is, we're so capable of the same, aren't we? We're so capable of experiencing incredible grace and yet not really knowing Jesus. My wife Joy tells me about a friend of theirs who was from a Japanese background and uh, she was living in London and having the most, she had the most incredible encounter with God at an event and she responded the only way that she felt that she could. She gave her life to Jesus. She'd heard about his incredible redemptive power. She'd heard about some of the things that he was and, and she knew that the only way she could respond to that message was to give her life to Jesus, so she did. The next day she rings up and she's like, What? Oh my goodness, no one told me Jesus came back from the dead? And we can experience grace, experience gifts, even the truth of Jesus, and still not know him. As the passage moves on, the Pharisees show pretty clearly that though they know a lot about God, they don't see Jesus at all. They argue over who he is and how he came to be able to heal someone. They get preoccupied with trying to establish where he's come from. They're doing their very best to discredit the testimony of this man. And all the while they're missing the miracle. They're missing him. And then they get into this religious talk. This is what it says in verse 28. Then they hurled insults at him and they said, You're this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. You see, they knew Moses had met with God. It was well documented that he had. And not only that, when Moses came down off that mountain and started to carve words into stone, it happened that the laws that he wrote embraced the written word that they already had, the Pentateuch. But not only that, they also embraced the vast swathe of Jewish traditions that they held dear that had been passed from generation to generation. They followed what they knew. And they didn't know Jesus. In their midst was the one who they were so longing for, the Son of God, the Messiah, had even just healed a blind man's sight. 
And still they couldn't see it past their religion, past their idea of what a Messiah should look like. They missed it. If only they had known that all of what Moses had written was pointing to the Jesus who was stood so close. And we can do it too, right? We can seek and go after Christian values or social justice. We can long desperately for spiritual gifts. We can even long for biblical truth. We can become deeply rooted in religious stuff. And all of these things are good things. Good because they point to Jesus, but they aren't Jesus. He's even better than all these things. You know, one of the things that I love about this passage is what happens next. So while the Pharisees furiously question the man who's received his sight, they aren't happy with the answers they're getting. And so they say this in verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. In other words, they're saying, you're going to have to do better than that. It was your eyes he healed after all. It wasn't our eyes. And that's the tone, right? They're trying to make it personal. The funny thing is that that's exactly what Jesus does after all the questioning and interrogation ends. This is what it says. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said to them, Do you believe in the Son of Man? When he found him. Not content to just watch from a distance, Jesus finds him. And Jesus makes it personal. And this is the moment, finally, where Jesus becomes Jesus to the man. What do I mean? Well, when he's first asked about regaining his sight, he replies, the one they call Jesus. In other words, some guy, I don't know, I think he's called Jesus. And then when the Pharisees question him the first time, he's a prophet, is what they say. But when Jesus comes close and meets him face to face, he calls him Lord. This is what it says. Jesus heard they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord... I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus becomes Jesus to him. You know, coming to faith and giving your life to Jesus isn't just a change of direction. It's a change of connection. Connection not to an ideal or a philosophy or something far-fetched or distant. It's connection to a person. I mean, Jesus doesn't give him any choice when he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? The man asked, Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And time again, Jesus makes it about himself. And he's unashamed. He's unswerving. I mean, just look at his teaching. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Aristotle says to his disciples, follow my teachings. Socrates says to his disciples, follow my teachings. Buddha says to his disciples, follow my meditations. Confucius says to his, follow my sayings. Muhammad says to his disciples, follow my noble pillars. Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. You know, in all other religions follower can follow the teachings of its founder without having a relationship with that founder but not with Jesus it's him and who is he to you we need to come to terms with who Jesus is to us but second we need to come to terms with who Jesus is in us stories told of John Wimber the founder of the Vineyard Church he was taking a flight somewhere in the 1980s And I became aware that as he waited in queues and wandered around the airport, that this lady was just following him, like stuck to his movements, like wanted to be close to him. Everywhere he went, there she was. And after a while, eventually, he turned to her, recognizing what was happening, and said, It's beautiful, isn't it? 
it's the presence of Jesus. And right there in the airport, drawn in like a magnetic pool, he led that woman to the Lord. She just wanted to be around something she had never experienced before. Jesus. And as we explore the manifesto in the coming weeks, just as we need to come to terms with who Jesus is to us, we need to come to terms with who Jesus is in us. These are the words of Jesus in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see. I have come so that blind eyes will see. I have come so that dead things will live again. And as Christians, we believe that when we come to faith, we ask Jesus to come into our hearts, right? To come and live in us. And so we should hear stories like John Wimber's all of the time. But if we're honest, we're probably more likely to feel a bit like the man whose sight has been healed. This is what the passage said in verse 11. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked. I don't know, he said. And if we're honest, so much of the time we encounter people seeking, people longing for something, and yet we can so easily become a people of, I don't know, when people are looking for Jesus. Why is that? I think it's because so much of the time we've become much more concerned with becoming people of imitation rather than people of implantation. Again and again, the Bible says things like this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and dine with him and he with me, Revelation 3.20. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Jesus is to live in us. That's the message of the Bible. That's the truth for every one of us who has asked Jesus to come and live in us by his Holy Spirit. What this does mean, devastatingly, for all of you that grew up in uh, the 80s and 90s and into the uh, early 2000s, what this does mean is, if you're a millennial today, that the WWJD bracelets of the 90s were just a distraction. I'm sorry to devastate you. I know you even got the rainbow one, right? It was just a distraction. Sorry. I know you even learned how to wear them inside out and flip them back over so that you know you had it all spelt right and that silly little plastic thing didn't get in the way. I know you did all of that, but they were just a distraction. Distraction. They weren't, strictly speaking, true. I know you're devastated about that. Because it's not about asking the question, what would Jesus do when it comes to our lives, our decisions, our everyday, our huge life questions. It's about asking the question, what is Jesus doing in me? What is Jesus doing through me? How is the Jesus who is in me shaping my attitude towards that person at work? Speaking to the anxiety in my life, wrestling the death-like grip that I have on money open, drawing my eyes away from the insignificance of the stuff that I long for, speaking a louder voice than the likes and the follows that I desperately seek, whispering insight about someone's situation or encouragement they desperately need to hear right now, calling us into living the opposite way. And who is he? Who is this Jesus who's in us? Well, just like we were given thanks last week for how we can be so connected to the Nehemiah story because the God he trusted is the same God as we trust now. The incredible reality of Christian faith is that the Jesus who we invite into our lives is the same Jesus that we're reading about. The Bible story Jesus, the one who spoke the most incredible words of life, the one who said the most countercultural things, the one who spoke storms into stillness, the one who saw people who nobody saw, the one who turned people's lives around, the one who ate with people so far 
far from who he was. The one who made blind eyes see. The one who hung in a tree. The one who said, it is finished. That's who lives in you and I. Because this isn't about imitation. He already lives in us. It's about letting him speak. Letting him lead our lives. Let the prompts lead to action. Let the words and the truth out. You know, when we hear the words of Bonnie Vare whenever he sings, I was never sure of how much of you I could let in when he sings that song, Heavenly Father. I just want to scream at the top of my lungs, all of him, all of him. And what if living the manifesto meant letting the same all of him, Jesus, out again? Why? Because that's the only way that manifesto living changes the world. This is what it says in Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through us. Jesus through us. And you know something? I think that when we live that way, the world is less weirded out than some halfway house of faith. Like take the Salvation Army, for example. I mean, talk about a branding nightmare in this day and age. Salvation Army. Salvation and Army. I mean, that's about as bad as it gets, right? Militant Christians coming to impose their views upon you, right? In our day and age, they should be the most hated group in the world. But yet there's no one in the world who doesn't like the Salvation Army. No one. Even in cities, super progressive, super open cities like New York City. Everyone loves the Salvation Army. Why? Because a long time ago, that organization was created and set itself to let the Jesus that was in them out. The Jesus that spoke to them about raising people out of poverty and brokenness and addictions, the most lost of the lost, and calling them to march in step with Jesus. And no one is weirded out about it because they aren't. Because it's just who they are are you know the incredible reality of following jesus is that we get to be just like that man all those years ago under all of the questions religious cultural history etc etc we get to say i don't know anything about all of that stuff i don't know what you're talking about i mean maybe we should try to take time to to listen and to understand educate ourselves read up and engage with the big moments of our time maybe we should But I don't know about all of that stuff. But one thing I know. That I was blind. And now I see. And that Jesus has become Jesus to me. And this is what he does. And this is what he's doing.